podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. for your kind introduction. I always say that most of the things you hear about uh, introductions are mostly rumor. Um, I don't believe them. <laughs> um, by the time someone narrates uh, what your resume looks like, you probably have forgotten what you did or may not have done. Um, and then you wonder whether you actually did it or not. But it's a great pleasure to be here and also to be in the midst of so many uh, people that I have known over a period of time, um, from Don to Ma to Catherine and even Paddy has uh, come out of retirement, uh, Gil Losha, whom I haven't seen uh, for a very long time. And I always say that um, in very many ways, the Refugee Studies Center is actually my intellectual home, and I've got a very close connection with the center, and it's very special um, you know, to me. Uh, because I got interested in this field as an undergraduate student uh, in Zambia. Um, by then, Zambia was the only independent country surrounded by colonized countries. And because of that, most of the refugees fleeing from the fighting uh, in Zimbabwe, what was then southern Rhodesia from South Africa, Namibia, Southwest Africa, Angola, uh, and Mozambique, all of which were under colonial rule, had their bases in Zambia. And very often, South African forces, Rhodesian forces, would come and bomb refugee camps um, on the basis that they were hiding uh, guerrilla fighters. And the students would then go to the refugee camps, um, take water, food, blankets, uh, arrange for them to be evacuated to hospitals. So that memory actually you know, stood in my mind uh, forever and defined my interest in public international law as well as uh, in human rights. We also did research for liberation movements on what is the status of a refugee in international law. Is there a right of hot pursuit uh, and subjects like that? And so liberation movements would then have a seminar to discuss those issues. But as students, we kind of did some of the background work. Um, and I think that was the uh, beginning of my interest uh, in the subject. And shortly after I started teaching at the University of Zambia, I got this invitation uh, to come to the Refugee Studies program then, as it was known. And the meeting was appropriate about the implementation of the African Union Convention governing the specific aspects of refugees uh, in Africa uh, over a period of, uh, I think, five days um, with states, um, other international lawyers, um, and then two years later, I came to Oxford to do my DPhil, and of course, I had an affiliation with the program uh, from that time. Um, so the summer school start, um, and also so the uh, MSc start. At that time, it was the MST we called it, I think. Uh, drafted the uh, initial regulations for the program. Uh, after I left, I think I became an external examiner for some time on the program. Um, and then I became elusive, I think, as Catherine said. And by the way, that's, that's a term that said so much about me. Many people tend to think that I'm elusive until they catch me. But today I'm delighted to be able to speak about the right to seek and obtain asylum under the African human rights system. 
Um, and I think the choice of topic was also made by uh, Catherine. Otherwise, I'd have simply have said, uh, you know, get the book and read it. And I've also promised that this is not uh, a book promotion occasion. It is really to engage into the substance um, of the book and the project uh, and why um, it started. I think, as most of you clearly know, there are about 14 to 15 million refugees worldwide. And about 6 to 7 million of those are in Africa. And the numbers tend to remain stagnant over a period of time. Uh, no matter how we solve one uh, refugee outflow, uh, others uh, come onto the scene, South Sudan, Central African Republic, Syria, uh, on top of um, the old cases. And I think we're also aware that refugees are a special category because they are actually individuals who have lost the protection of their state of origin. Uh, without going into details. And within international law, it then becomes a responsibility for other states to assume protection. Uh, the presence of individuals unprotected in international law is an abnormal category. Everyone has to be protected by some authority, some guy, somewhere. And the refugee system very much um, emerged as a way of providing protection to those who had lost the protection uh, of the state of origin. And I think we're also familiar with the fact that unlike ordinary human rights, including the right to seek and enjoy asylum perhaps, uh, the system of protection is state-centered. Uh, it is a territorial system. Individuals moving from the territory of one state to another state. Ordinary human rights protection is at the luxury end of the spectrum. I'm seated here, I make a complaint to the European Court of Human Rights, such and such rights have been violated. The court makes a decision, but no one actually comes after me. You know, the state accepts that I can make that complaint, and it's a normal relationship. In the context of refugees, we are talking about people who have to flee in order to be safe. Uh, and if they don't make that flight, which started, I think, in the 1930s, in the 1920s, we had individuals expelled from Russia, Armenia. But from the 1930s, we had the phenomenon of Jews from Germany beginning to flee, which introduced the notion of flight uh, within international refugee law. And still today it remains the case that uh, implicit within the system is obviously the notion of flight across international borders and into the territory uh, of states uh, who may exercise protection. It's anchored around the 1951 Convention on Refugees and the 1967 Protocol. Uh, as well as uh, the African Union Convention governing the specific aspects of refugees in Africa, which is said to be the effective regional complement to the 1951 Convention. But despite the fact that traditional international refugee law uh, exists, the reason for undertaking a human rights approach had several uh, foundations to it. The first of which is some, I think, would recall that in the 1980s, 81 and 82, an international conference on assistance to refugees in Africa was held, ICARA 1 and ICARA 2, um, looking at humanitarian assistance to refugees, looking at uh, the whole issue of burden or responsibility sharing, looking at the relationship between humanitarian assistance and early recovery and development activities related to um, 
to refugees. So in as much as people now speak of uh, a development-based approach to protection, both of refugees and IDPs, the roots are actually much deeper um, than that. And after the ICARA conferences, then followed in 1994, uh, a joint initiative by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and the African Union, which was the Addis Ababa conference uh, to look at um, how the 1969 convention could actually be given more substance uh, in terms of protection. And I still remember going to that conference fairly excited because Kofi Annan was there, the Secretary General of the Commonwealth uh, was there, Francis Deng, who was then Special Representative uh, of the Secretary General and IDPs. You know, it was like an um, ABC uh, of individuals. Uh, and at that time, um, UNHCR had asked me to write a paper on state responsibility uh, for both refugees and um, IDPs. And I felt totally uh, inadequate to the task. Nonetheless, that conference produced uh, what is known as the Atsababa document, and I think you may find this in the special issue of the Journal of International Refugee Law about 1995, and had about six principles which were intended to strengthen uh, refugee uh, protection. I then got involved with uh, the African um, project on um, exile, i.e. African Exodus was the name of the project, and it was run by the then Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, now known as Human Rights First. Um, and they had this project to look into the actual conditions of protecting refugees in Africa. Uh, and for me, that provided, I think, the first experience uh, in terms of uh, field protection and actually going into refugee camps. I think we started from uh, Malawi, uh, at that time because of um, the fact that you know, Mozambique was getting its independence. So from Malawi we went to uh, Mozambique, from Mozambique to Zimbabwe, from Zimbabwe to Kenya, uh, from Kenya to uh, Cote d'Ivoire, and from Cote d'Ivoire we went to Liberia. So we covered quite a great deal um, of, of um, the camps and settlements and looking at actual conditions. And we stayed in refugee camps all the time. We're there uh, to actually see the conditions in which refugees themselves um, lived. After that came the 2000 meeting of UNHCR and the African Union again. This time the African Union Convention on Refugees uh, had reached 30 years. So it was the 30th anniversary and the 30th anniversary was to look at how the AU Convention, together with the 1951 Convention, uh, could have some sort of comprehensive implementation plan uh, to move the protection system forward. Uh, and Gin Conakry was interesting for the reason that although the implementation plan was actually produced, it was never adopted by the meeting. Um, we're still finalizing the text when a group of cultural dancers came and invaded the conference hall <laughs> because the president was coming to close it and there were some ceremonies and they actually didn't care whether we were finished or not and they started performing right in the middle <laughs> of the conference so we all had to withdraw and simply say that we'll do this by email uh, and later somehow miraculously uh, you know, it was adopted by, by email so sometimes when you read um, some documents, uh, you have to look into their validity <laughs> and see whether they, they, they actually did reflect uh, what was there. 
So when I reflected on all of this, I thought that there was one dynamic, one dimension that was missing, and that was the dimension of human rights. Uh, in all these processes before I got involved and after I got involved, and hence I began to think about a project on how uh, refugees would be protected by um, a human rights system, taking the African uh, project as a start, and it was meant to go to Europe, it was meant to go to Latin America as well, uh, but it never got there. Uh, although I think that David was speaking about the inter-American system um, about last week or so. Um, and the aim here was to see the prospect offered by the African human rights system to provide protection when national legal systems failed to do so and when the failure could not be remedied by UNHCR or other actors uh, for that matter. And it was also to give support to refugees who in most cases were vulnerable, didn't know their rights, and it was then important to try and get uh, a triangular relationship. Civil society on the one hand, so that civil society could actually undertake the task of uh, bringing cases before the African Commission. And then universities on the other, um, for purposes of teaching, as well as related to um, lawyers. And then you also had refugees as a component. So the project went to West Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa and looked at specific issues of refugee protection uh, in order to inform a human rights-based approach um, uh, to it. And finally, we actually had seminars in all those regions uh, at the end of the project uh, you know, to test what was actually um, you know, the manual that was produced and the book then came out that manual and out of that experience. So it was viewed Tested. It's not something that I actually simply sat uh, and decided to write um, somehow uh, and imagined. It's something that had to be tested, something that had to be made use of. And I think after that, quite a good number of cases involving refugees have been brought before the African human rights system. And I think only yesterday, if you look at the uh, website of Redress, there was a decision made by the African Commission on the human rights of IDPs in relation to, to Sudan-related um, subjects. So at least the momentum you know, that was set, I think, has, uh, has gone on. But what is the project itself? It started with, uh, obviously, the recognition in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 14 specifically, uh, of the right to seek and enjoy asylum in other countries uh, from uh, persecution. Inasmuch as that provision appeared in the Universal Declaration of uh, Human Rights, many lawyers, including international refugee lawyers, took the view that the right to seek and enjoy asylum was empty of content, that it actually had no substance um, you know, to it, and it was not of practical value. Um, international refugee law remained the norm. So the analysis begins from the fact that the very inclusion of the right to seek and enjoy asylum means that the structure of international law at least began to change somewhat because asylum was always seen as the right of a state to grant or a discretion on the part of the state. But to say that individuals had the right to seek uh, and enjoy asylum meant that there was a certain power under international human rights law granted to individuals to take matters in their own hands and go to states uh, and use that right 
uh, to seek asylum. And the question was, how was this going to work out? And within human rights, the right to seek and enjoy asylum did not stand on its own. There was the right to a nationality as well, included in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And just as before, states always took the view that it was their right or privilege to grant nationality. But by saying that individuals have a right to a nationality, altered the picture um, as well. So I was keen to look at this in practice and examine the, uh, the dimensions of the transformative effect uh, of the right to seek and obtain asylum uh, as it was uh, actually reshaping uh, international law uh, in some respects. And I found out that, you know, for a start, the right to seek and enjoy asylum uh, in international law as part of human rights also meant that responsibilities of the state of origin were taken into account, whereas international refugee law on its own is actually an effective, reactive response system. Uh, it looks at the cause of flight and whether, by reference to the cause of flight, an individual has either a well-founded fear of persecution on convention grounds or that group eligibility would apply. Um, but the state of origin actually bears no responsibility in terms of the events that led others to, to flee. But human rights can be used because individuals can actually use human rights to sue their state of origin for having caused them to flee in the first place, uh, i.e. flight that violates uh, human rights. Uh, and one of the uh, earlier cases I came across here was Oko versus Kenya, which had been decided by the African Commission um, quite a while ago. Um, those that are familiar with Kenya would remember that Ouko was a foreign minister in Kenya, and the charred remains of his body were found somewhere in a forest. He had been killed in mysterious circumstances, even if he was serving as foreign minister. And it wasn't clear who had killed him, and I think today there are still questions about his death. But his brother then organized a demonstration at the University of Nairobi, uh, protesting uh, at the uh, complicity of the state um, in his death, and state agents went after him, and he fled and went into DRC, um, Democratic Republic of the Congo, and sought asylum there. But while he sought asylum there, he also brought a cause of action against the Kenyan government uh, for having violated his rights, not protected uh, him against the state agents. He had the right to freedom of association and assembly, the basis for demonstrations. He had the right to freedom of expression, uh, political opinion, uh, all of which the commission found Kenya had violated uh, and then required Kenya to compensate him and, of course, to ensure uh, that he had safe return. So we then begin to see that within a human rights approach, there's a double-edged sword, which is that refugees can use human rights against their state of origin. They can also use human rights against the receiving state if the treatment that they receive within the receiving state is not up to uh, human rights um, standards, whereas international refugee law still remains very much um, a state-centered system. I'm not putting it down. It's very effective in the way that it is, but it very often is a response system. It reacts to the cause of flight and looks at the circumstances uh, of the cause of flight. The only footnote I think we could put there now is that persecution is a crime against humanity. Uh, and so it would be interesting to look at the dynamics between 
establishing that an individual has a well-founded fear of persecution established, and in some cases they may indeed have been persecuted, and to see whether there is corresponding evidence that can then be used to establish individual responsibility, criminal responsibility in the state of origin for persecuting others and therefore inviting the regime of international criminal law. Uh, I think that relationship is yet to be established, and I offer that to um, you to uh, be interested in it, those that would like to write either master's dissertations or indeed PhD dissertations, um, you know, to, to look at that relationship and that particular balance, um, as it were. And then I also found that, obviously, in the inter-American system, um, under Article 22, there are provisions on every person has the right to seek and be granted asylum uh, in a foreign country in accordance with the legislation of the state and international conventions. Um, the African Charter, Article 12.3, also takes that. Every individual shall have the right, when persecuted, to seek and obtain asylum uh, in other countries in accordance with the laws of those countries and international conventions. The fact that it uses the term when persecuted does not actually suggest that uh, this is a standard that varies from a well-founded fear of persecution. It was simply a clumsy translation from French to English because the chart was drafted in, in French in the first place. And I did find that this is a problem throughout international instruments. When I was drafting some treaties, and the French and English-speaking juries began to argue. And you went to the text and the travel preparatory. You found that actually things meant different things in both languages. So if you take genocide, the first element, i.e. killing members of a group, uh, in French, it's assassination, it's not killing. <laughs> so those aspects are always important that when you're looking at international instruments, actually try and go back uh, you know, to the different texts and, and the negotiations and the languages in which the texts were, were agreed to try and extrapolate um, you know, the true meaning. But at least what we have so far is a reconciliation of both international refugee law and international human rights law. Uh, because the penultimate provisions require the rights to seek and enjoy asylum uh, in the event of persecution in accordance with either national legislation or international conventions or treaties that relate to asylum. So that brings a relationship between human rights and traditional international refugee law uh, because the conventions we have are obviously those of international uh, refugee law. So this coexistence, I think, is, is, is important. And it was explained by the inter-American system in the Haitian interdiction case, um, which was actually the first one to look into the dynamics of the rights to seek and enjoy asylum. The background to the case was the uh, interception of refugees from Haiti uh, by respective American administration, George Bush Sr. and Clinton after that. And UNHCR was very concerned by uh, this practice. Um, they actually engineered uh, a case which went all the way to the Supreme Court uh, of the United States. Some of you remember it. Sale uh, and others versus Haitian uh, immigration. Sale uh, and others and um, Haitian immigration centers versus uh, the Secretary of State. And the Supreme Court took the view that uh, it was actually perfectly lawful. Uh, to intercept uh, asylum seekers at sea because in their view, um, the concept of freedom on the high seas 
applied, uh, no one had jurisdiction on the high seas. Uh, it's a question of freedom, and you exercise that freedom uh, in ways that were best. And arising out of that, the matter went to the uh, inter-American system. And the inter-American commission held that actually such interception was a breach uh, of the rights to seek and enjoy asylum. And the explanation was that the right had two components to it. The first component is seek. The first component is seek, and the second component uh, is obtain asylum. And in the explanation, the component seek meant that an individual had a right to safety in the first instance, i.e. access to state territory, and also access to status determination processes and procedures. Uh, and preventing them from having that access was a breach uh, of the right to seek uh, asylum per se. The element of obtain would depend on whether status has been granted in accordance with international conventions. So if the state found that an individual had a well-founded fear of persecution on convention grounds and granted asylum, then the second element of obtaining asylum was therefore met. Um, and so those two elements then define the basic characteristic uh, of what it is um, to seek and enjoy uh, asylum um, in, in other states. And you may think, uh, as we discuss what's going on in relation to uh, Australia, Papua New Guinea, um, and others, but you may raise specific questions um, on that issue. Nonetheless, uh, I think that the point uh, was met, and the African Commission uh, took this in relation to DRC versus uh, Burundi, Rwanda, and Uganda, and their use of force uh, in the DRC and the consequent displacement of individuals. So the case deals with the use of force, it deals with international humanitarian law, but it also held that the unlawful use of force meant that those two, three states were responsible for refugee outflows, as well as uh, IDPs within the Democratic Republic um, of the Congo. They also found that expulsion from the new Rwandese government in the mid-90s when Paul Kagame's government uh, took over, and there were refugees from uh, Burundi at the time who were in Rwanda, but they also happened to be um, Hutu refugees who at the time were not tolerated by the new government and were therefore expelled. And the commission found that this expulsion was a breach um, of the right to seek and enjoy asylum under the African Charter on Human um, and People's Rights. But if those are the elements of the right, what then underlies this in structural terms? For the African Commission, at least, the Commission is empowered to draw on wider aspects of international law with regard to end decisions that they make uh, in terms of Article 60, 61. That is, they will draw inspiration from uh, applicable international law. That means that the 1951 Convention, the 1969 Convention also apply uh, within the framework of the African Charter uh, on Human uh, and People's Rights. The foundation of protection lies in the fact that member states of the African Union recognize the rights in the Charter. So there's a difference between the duty to recognize those rights and the duty arising from the ratification of the Charter as such. So their membership of the African Union per se um, means that they're actually under a duty to recognize the rights. Whether they ratify, that's quite another thing, but they have a duty to, to recognize uh, those rights. 
And then there's also a duty to protect the rights and duties in the Charter without discrimination. Um, so non-discrimination is a fundamental guarantee. So when Zambia decided uh, to expel some uh, 30 or so West African nationals because they were involved in illegal activities, the African Commission found that this was actually a breach uh, of the principle of non-discrimination, and they had discriminated against them because they were foreign nationals. Uh, and I was actually involved at the time in giving some advice to the nationals who were involved in this particular case uh, to understand um, Zambian law uh, a little bit better. They've also held in the context of sexual violence um, that this is discrimination against women. Uh, in the same case, DRC versus Burundi and others. And as we speak, I think there's a case pending against Egypt before the African Commission in relation to discrimination uh, against uh, women on the basis of violence, but also discrimination um, on grounds that Egypt does not recognize group eligibility under the African Union Convention governing the specific aspects of refugees. It applies to the 1951 Convention. Uh, and I think some people cleverly decided to test before the Commission uh, and to see why um, Egypt does not apply the group eligibility criteria of the 1969 Convention. So that's a, a, a test case, and when it does arise, uh, I think it will be interesting uh, to see how uh, it is dealt with. There are then crucial issues about the principle of non-refuma in practice and how it applies in the context of the rights to seek and obtain asylum. Uh, I think we're familiar that the principle resides in the refugee context under Article 33 of the 1951 Convention, um, but we're also, I think, aware of the fact that there are exceptions to non-refuma under the 1951 Convention on grounds of security, largely because the framers thought that at that time, those that had persecuted others, uh, you know, the Nazis, the uh, members of the Third Reich and others, um, were still bent on some kind of subversive activities against the United Nations. And, and therefore, uh, in addition to exclusion clause, they didn't want to close the door completely, and they wanted those kinds of individuals to be found uh, and flushed out. Uh, so the circumstances were fairly narrow. Nonetheless, I think you'd have come ac um, across uh, the Canadian case of Suresh versus uh, the Secretary of State, where Suresh was actually uh, deported from Canada uh, on grounds related to Article 33.2, invoking issues of security. Um, he was a member of the uh, Tamil Tigers from Sri Lanka, um, and they feared that you know, he was involved in activities that obviously uh, would endanger the security uh, of Canada. But that is not the case uh, with regard to human rights. And with regard to the African Union Convention uh, governing the specific aspects of refugees, the African Union Convention is quite categorical in Article 2 that there will be no rejection at the frontier or the border um, for asylum seekers. Uh, and the principle of non reforma there is completely absolute. There are no exceptions to it. Uh, and the thinking there was to protect the group eligibility system because it's a system that was designed for mass outflows there was the danger that when states became inward-looking at some point, they would then begin to shut their borders um, and expel or fall uh, asylum seekers. 
So in order to make the group eligibility system work, there was a strong injunction against rejection um, and making non-refuma an absolute principle and engaging the principle of responsibility sharing, which never became effective as the way out uh, in case one country had a heavier burden in proportion uh, to the others. Uh, and it would appeal to other African countries who would use their best endeavors uh, to provide protection uh, to, to asylum seekers. And we find um, the whole notion of non-refuma, of course, uh, encapsulated under the prohibition of torture in human and degrading treatment uh, in terms of Article 5 of the African Union Convention, which was also invoked in the case I mentioned against Rwanda, um, when Hutu refugees were expelled. But we've also seen in the context of the European Convention on Human Rights, Article 3 has that effect. Uh, no one shall be subjected to torture, inhuman, or degrading treatment, full stop. But the application by the European Court is such that there is no exception to Article 3, which has become the source of tension between the Court <coughs> and European states who want to remove or expel <coughs> those that they think are actually threatening state security uh, and others. And I think matters, first of all, started from Chahao versus the United Kingdom, which you may have come across. You know, Chahao himself was not actually um, a refugee. He came originally as an illegal immigrant, was granted amnesty under amnesty arrangements, and therefore became lawfully a resident uh, but he was also involved in activities uh, in Punjab, the Punjab separatist movement. And India protested to the United Kingdom that you're keeping someone who is threatening um, the security of another country and wanted Chahao deported back to, uh, to India. And indeed, uh, the Home Secretary uh, saved him with a deportation order. Uh, the Chahao family, I think it was him and his children, almost about 16 persons altogether, um, and that was fought all the way to the European Court. Uh, the Court of Appeal here had held that, yes, he could be deported, uh, looking at the fact that under the 1951 Convention, there was an exception to non-reformer. So before the European Court, that was the main argument, the United Kingdom government arguing that um, even if Article 3 prohibits deportation to countries where there's a risk of torture, inhuman and degrading treatment, nonetheless, um, Similar standards had to be taken in interpreting that by reference to the fact that the 1951 Convention itself made an exception. And if you look at that case, the court actually went in some great detail to look at Article 33, 1, 2, and its relationship to Article 3 of the European Convention, and finally came to the conclusion that Article 3 was absolute. Whatever the 1951 Convention said, Shahao could not be deported, and after that there was a floodgate Ahmed versus Austria followed. Ahmed was from Somalia. He had actually been granted refugee status, uh, but he committed uh, an ordinary crime. I think he stole a lady's handbag. Uh, and in most countries, once a refugee or a foreign national commits an ordinary criminal offense, they would be liable to deportation under ordinary immigration law, um, which obviously in the context of refugees is... Uh, an anomaly, uh, and Ahmed versus Austria also came to the same conclusion, that they could not deport him. Uh, he had the right to stay within Austria, 
But poor Jahar was asked to go and report to the police station almost every day, sometimes twice a day, sometimes three days. And that went on for quite some time. So eventually, and sadly, Jahar took his own life uh, as a final act of protest against the system uh, and left a note that you know, the European Court of Human Rights had given him a reprieve. Nonetheless, he continued to be harassed you know, by state agents, um, and he couldn't stand that. So that was his final uh, act, of, uh, <coughs> act of protest, as it were. And then, of course, there's um, flexible standing. I'm now trying to finish, so we have some time. We're finishing at 6. Um, and, well, I, I would like to leave some time for, obviously, questions and answers. If that is the jurisprudence, um, I would just like to speak about uh, the process uh, a little bit, uh, which is that the African system accords uh, flexible standing uh, to refugees to bring <coughs> complaints uh, against either their state of origin or the receiving state. The exhaustion of local remedies, which human rights systems require as regards citizens, is waived in relation to refugees for the reason that by the time they've left their country of origin, they have no opportunity to exhaust local remedies. And even in the country in which they are, if they sought to exhaust local remedies, this takes time. And sometimes they're harassed for the very reason that they've actually chosen to go to court. Uh, and bring a case against the, the, the host or receiving state. So for that reason, the state of exceptionalism that exists in relation to refugees also applies here uh, in matters of, um, <coughs> matters of standing. There are obviously some problems, um, so it's not a completely rosy picture. Um, the first of which is the issue of compliance with decisions made by the African Commission and indeed by human rights bodies. And compliance, I think, is a general problem in international law because there's no police force to um, try and um, exercise some kind of coercive power or authority. Uh, the European system has a committee of ministers to enforce decisions. Uh, but even there, uh, Louise versus Stecky was quite an outstanding case. The Czech Republic in uh, DH versus the Czech Republic, uh, a case involving uh, Roma children and discrimination against them, has not actually complied with that decision yet. Um, so that's an issue. In the African system, I think the outstanding case was the decision against Mauritania when Mauritania deported its African population out of Mauritania into Senegal and other uh, countries. Um, and although they were told that this was unlawful, for many years, uh, they did not comply with the decision. Uh, it actually took a threat from Senegal uh, to resort to the use of force. That's when they said, fine, we rescind the order of deportation. Um, and those who were deported uh, can come back. But they took no active measures uh, to restore the ID cards that had been destroyed uh, systematically to um, destroy uh, identity um, as well. But there's a special rapporteur of the African Commission uh, on refugees, immigrants, and IDPs who at least goes round uh, those states um, that have not yet complied in order to get them to comply with the decision. So there's a mechanism, but its uh, entire effect, uh, of course, does hang uh, in balance. 
there are also difficulties about states accepting that refugees actually have rights. Okay? They see refugees as people in need, hapless objects, uh, but they don't have rights to assert. Um, and the idea of the right to seek and enjoy asylum is something that the state system still has to come to, to grips with. Uh, and even as we speak in the context of the European system, uh, you hear Theresa May or others um, saying so often, well, we can't deport uh, foreign nationals because they have a right to family life uh, or because of ABC. So there's a tension uh, between um, the state system and the human rights system i.e. a refusal to accept that foreign nationals have the same rights as nationals in many respects and should actually be treated in the same way. Because the ultimate test of human rights as an inclusive standard uh, is the extent to which states actually apply it to non-nationals. They have a duty to protect their nationals. So, you know, to that extent, you'd say that that is the ordinary system of protection. But when the system extends to non-nationals in quite some vital ways, I think that's the real test. Uh, and of states to examine that test that everyone has human rights and they are entitled to, uh, to protection. Sometimes um, human rights treatment is either as good or as bad as the human rights record in a country is. Um, and so the danger sometimes of simply using human rights in relation to refugees runs the risk that the quality of treatment will be so bad uh, because states always say, well, if um, our own citizens live in such poor conditions, what can we do for, for refugees? And you hear that argument again coming up most of the time. And I think this is where international refugee law provides stronger protection and there's recognition by states that refugees as persons with status are entitled to exceptional treatment and that exceptional treatment means that if states can't offer it then international actors can UNHCR, civil society uh, and others but if you use the human rights language uh, clearly you'd run into a very solid block uh, for most of the states and they would not then admit that international actors can, using the framework of human rights, uh, come and uh, aid uh, refugees in the context of, uh, of human rights. So the exceptional treatment of refugees under traditional international uh, refugee law uh, provides stronger protection uh, in those circumstances. And there's also sometimes naivety about the use of... Um, of human rights um, and here I make reference to some decisions that for example the European system made uh, in relation to Sri Lankan um, asylum seekers who had come to the UK via Germany and the UK said well you have to go back to Germany because Germany is your first country of asylum and the asylum seekers then argued that well, but Germany does not recognize persecution by non-state actors. Uh, and because they're from Sri Lanka, they had run away from the Tamils. They were being persecuted by, by the Tamils. So the European Court of Human Rights, TI versus the UK, did hold that um, refugee, the, the, the system of human rights uh, under the European Convention uh, covered the obligations of non-state actors. Uh, and therefore, there was a duty on the part of Germany um, to hear their claims, which German, of course, did. Um, but after that, they closed the door to all Tamils, <laughs> right? 
so you have one victory on the basis of human rights. Thereafter, you know, Germany just made sure that um, Tamils who were seeking asylum did not arrive on their territory. So that was the effect of the case, and that is the naivety that sometimes I, I, I speak about in human rights in relation to uh, to refugees. So you might want to bring a case before the African Commission. Uh, you may have one victory, but the effect of that victory uh, could have consequences for the rest of the refugees. And I always advise uh, lawyers and other asylum seekers that you really have to uh, choose and pick your cases. Uh, if you just uh, pick any case that comes up, you know, there may be a risk of actually destroying precisely what you're trying to build, um, which may be uh, dangerous. Nonetheless, I think one sees human rights as the uh, lex generalis, i.e. the, spe the generally applicable law, and international refugee law as the uh, lex specialis, i.e. the law that, specialized, um, that is specialized in relation to, to refugees. And I think that relationship uh, should also be, uh, be kept. Uh, finally, there are implications for UNHCR. Uh, UNHCR has made fairly deliberate um, attempts to actually have collaborative links with the African Commission. They now have a memorandum of understanding uh, as regards the uh, protection of refugees by um, the African Commission. And at headquarters, they also have uh, a human rights treaty body section that looks at the way in which the treaty bodies uh, of the UN treat uh, cases of refugees. Uh, you know, famously, there were cases against Australia before the Human Rights Committee, uh, and which UNHCR actually prompted to bring before the treaty bodies in order that they could have, um, you know, some some decisions. So that means that I think UNHCR has also taken uh, a fairly broader human rights outlook in addition to traditional refugee law within its uh, ambit. A lot more to say, but I think I'll end there so that there's actually uh, a bit of time, 10 minutes to go, but you can take a bit more time uh, if need be. Thank you. Thank you very much. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.